Good morning and welcome to the Houghton Wesleyan Church. It's wonderful to see many familiar faces after the summer and uh, many new faces as well. So welcome this morning. Please stand for the call to worship. If we have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then let us make our joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and of one mind. We do nothing of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather in humility, we will value others above ourselves, not looking to our own interests, but each to the interests of the others. In our relationships with one another, let us have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. gave him the name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Please pray with me. Dear Lord, bless each and every person that's here this morning. Help us to come with open hearts and minds to hear what you have for us to receive. Help us to have an open heart of service and gratitude and help us to take a little piece of the sermon today and help it to apply to our lives. In the Lord's name we pray. Amen.
Amen. As servants of God, it is a joy to come together and worship. Let me invite you to take a moment, share a word of greeting with others who are here. Perhaps introduce yourself to someone that you do not know. Having laid out the criteria, they found out there were two equally qualified people. One named Matthias and one named Justice. I want now to speak to you about humility. For every vacancy that exists, God has at least two equally qualified candidates. You are not that special. You do understand, I hope, that the only irreplaceable component in the work of the kingdom is God. Without God, we can do nothing. Without us, God still has a shot. I know you feel that with your CRCDS credentials, you can almost walk on water. Well, go ahead and walk on it. That's okay with me. But if, like... Peter, you take one step and sink. Uh, you'd be in good company. We, we are not irreplaceable. I thought I was. I, I thought I was. Dr. McMickle is our clue speaker this year. He will be preaching here next Sunday and uh, throughout the next week uh, at Wesley Chapel. And you see the information in the bulletin about clue. And uh, we hope you'll be a part of that. Uh, as you can see, he's a very engaging speaker. And uh, we've had him, he's been to college a time or two. And uh, the Spirit of God has spoken through him many occasions. And we're praying that that will happen again. I invite you to join me in the uh, affirmation of our Christian faith, the Apostles' Creed. Printed on the inside cover of your bulletin, of your hymnal. Let us declare our Christian faith in the words of this historic affirmation. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Catholic, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.
Please join me in the prayer of confession that is printed in your bulletin. We offer our prayer to the one who has done so much for us in sending his son to be our savior. Let us pray together. Almighty God, you have raised Jesus from death to life and crowned him Lord of all. We confess that we have not bowed before him or acknowledged his rule in our lives. We have gone along with the ways of the world and failed to give him glory. Forgive us and raise us from sin that we may be your faithful people, obeying the commands of our Lord Jesus Christ, who rules the world and is head of the church, his body. In his name we pray. Amen. The Old Testament scripture reading this morning can be found in Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 9, and is found on page 717 in your Pew Bible. Hear the word of the Lord. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged, till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says, the creator of the heavens, who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people, And life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. To open eyes that are blind. To free captives from prison. And to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place, and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. This is the word of the Lord. As the ushers come forward, please stand for the doxology. Please pray with me. Dear Lord, help us to give generously and realize that only what we give is yours already. In the Lord's name we pray. Amen.
Sometimes the most appropriate posture for expressing our prayers is to stand, sometimes to sit, sometimes to kneel. This morning, as we offer our prayers together, if you would like to kneel, I would invite you to come to the altar and join me here. Feel free to sit in your pew. Feel free to stand if you would like. If you would like to come and join me at the altar, I invite you to do so now. Father, as we have come today, we recognize the gifts that you've given us, and particularly your Son, Jesus Christ, who brings such joy to us and to this world. We thank you for his coming and for all that his coming means in our lives and in this church and in your people around the world and in the world at large. And we come to offer thanks. Father, we also come to to share the burdens that are on our hearts today. We think of people who are grieving, and we especially pray for Gary King and his family, the recent death of his father. We pray your comforting presence upon this family. We pray for all who are struggling with health concerns. We pray for Bruce and Alton, for Dick and Isla and for Bev, for Edna and Linda and Micah. We pray for Bill, Crystal, Emily, and the others that are on our hearts today. Father, we pray for the world beyond us. We pray for the people of Ferguson, Missouri, in the midst of such strife and upheaval. And we ask that you will bring peace to this town and to others facing similar circumstances. We pray, Father, for all who have been affected by the Ebola virus. We pray for your healing grace to come upon them and that you will give to physicians and technicians and companies the ability to, to bring an end to this virus. We pray that your people would be a beacon of light in the midst of great suffering and pain. We pray for our brothers and sisters who face persecution that we seldom do. We pray especially for Yahya, this believer in Nepal who was attacked Because she's simply telling people about Jesus. We pray for your grace upon her. We pray for your mercy in her life. And we ask that you will use her to bring more and more people to you. And Father, as we we see her example, give us that same kind of courage as we live for you in our places. Lord, we pray for the beginning of the school year. We pray for every institution that we might be connected with, 
college, the academy, the public schools, in our homes, all the places in which learning takes place, we ask for your grace and mercy to be upon us and that this would be a year not just to learn intellectually, but more than anything to grow deeper in our walk with you. So speak into our lives this year. Teach us your grace and goodness. And transform us more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we offer our prayers. Remembering the model that he taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. The New Testament scripture reading this morning can be found in Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 10. Please stand for the New Testament reading. And following the reading, children ages 2 to 5 can be dismissed for children's church. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come. But woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. This is the word of the Lord.
How many of you have, have had in your life someone ask you, probably when you were younger, I would assume, what do you want to be when you grow up? Right? Most of us have been asked that question at some point in time. We might still be answering, I don't know yet, I haven't grown up. But that's a whole other discussion to have, right? The, the answers to that question are typically, I want to be a sports star, or I want to be an actress, or I want to be the President of the United States, or I want to be a doctor, or I want to be a teacher, a lawyer, I want to own a business. I don't think in all the years that I have asked that question or been asked that question or been around people when the question was asked, I don't think I have ever heard anyone ask the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? And the answer was, I want to be a servant. Because in our culture and society, we equate being a servant with failure. That's not how we view success. In our culture, success is making a lot of money. It's being the boss over people. It's controlling things. It's running things. That's what it means to be a success, not to be a servant. And what might be most disturbing is that often we give the same image in the church about success. Often in the church, we say to people, if you want to be a success, then you run this program or you're in charge of this or you get to sit on this board or committee that makes decisions. It's about power and influence, not all that unlike the society around us. And we, as the church, have a tendency to equate being a servant with failure. Jesus has a different idea. I can almost see Jesus saying to the disciples, what do you guys want to be when you grow up spiritually? James and John say, "Um, Jesus, when you bring in your kingdom, not we want to be the lowest, but we want to sit on your right and left hand. We want to be in the highest places of power and authority in your kingdom. And Jesus just shakes his head. How many times do the disciples get into an argument about not who's the least in the kingdom, but who's the greatest in the kingdom? And we wrestle with that same question over and over and over again. And so Jesus tells us this little parable about being a servant. And he says, in essence... If you want to be one of my disciples, you will be a servant. Being a servant is one of the identifying characteristics of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, when we look at this parable, this little thing about the servant, one of the things that might come to us initially is we might be thinking, wow, that's not a very complimentary picture of God. If God is the master, man, he's a taskmaster. He, he is really grinding it out with people. I don't think that's what Jesus is trying to do. He's not trying to make a point that this is what God is like. Neither is Jesus condoning the whole institution of slavery and the heinous nature of that. 
He, he is not saying, well, slavery is no big deal. He is simply connecting them with something that is a, that is a significant part of their culture and society at that time. And if we think being a servant is something no one would want to strive for, how much more them because it is a part of their world, an ugly part by and large of their world. And neither do I think Jesus is primarily saying that this is about serving God. I think what he's saying is I'm calling you to be servants of God by being servants of each other. And that makes sense because where is our most difficult place of struggle? Where do we feel the pain deep inside of us? When we think about the the difficulties that we're wrestling with in life... I would say most of the time it has something to do with relationships. People have hurt us, disappointed us, turned on us, attacked us. And we are struggling with the reality of a relationship that is causing us all kinds of pain and heartache and struggle. And we see it affecting our lives. And I think Jesus is trying to help us understand... If you're going to be a servant of God, you have to be servants of each other. Isn't that what John is saying in in his first letter when he writes, don't tell me you love God and hate your brothers and sisters. It just doesn't work that way. If you hate your brothers and sisters, you don't love God. They are connected. And so Jesus says at the beginning of this chapter, there are some relational Issues that you have to approach as a servant in order to to bring out the solution that I want to bring out in your life. And he says in verse 3, he says, if a, if a brother or sister uh, offends you, sins against you, he says, rebuke them. And I think there is inherent in what he's saying there, this idea that if we have the kind of faith in God that serves God, then that will come out in... Loving confrontation toward other people who need that. I'm hesitant to even talk about confrontation as a servant because most of the time confrontation isn't done in a loving, serving spirit. I I think I've said to you before, I had someone say to me years ago, I I have the gift of confrontation. (laughs) I said to them, you're right, you do have the gift of confrontation, but I don't think it's from the Holy Spirit. For them, confronting was anger, bitterness. They were, they, it was about control. It was about trying to tell people off because they didn't like what they were doing. There was nothing of love in it at all. And certainly, they didn't do that in a humble servant spirit at all. You think about a servant who goes to his, sees his master making decisions that are ruining the master's life. And the servant loves his master so much that he goes to him and says, that's harming you and I don't want to see you harmed. I love you too much to just let that go. You talk about sticking out your neck, taking a risk. 
And it's in that kind of humble, loving, servant spirit that we speak to each other when confrontation is needed. He goes on after that to talk about forgiveness. And he says, if someone sins against you and they come and say, forgive me, the only answer to that is, you're forgiven. There is no, well, let me think about it. There is no, let me see if you're serious about it. Please forgive me, you're forgiven. And Jesus says, if he comes one time, two times, three times, he says seven here. Another place, Peter says, is seven enough? And Jesus says, how about 70 times seven? In other words, just stop counting, just forgive. And someone comes to us and they ask our forgiveness for something, we say, I forgive you. And they come a second time for the same thing and we say, okay, I'll forgive you. And they come a third time and we step back and say, I'm going to have to think about this a little bit. You get to seven and we're saying, wait a minute, this isn't something, I'm not doing this anymore. Much less 70 times seven. But as a servant, as someone who cares about this person, we keep forgiving. Because this is what God does for us. Now there is a working out of the forgiveness and in terms of Sometimes it takes a bit of time for us to to feel inside that things are right between us and this person. But we are not, as servants, we have no right to withhold forgiveness from another person. And that's what being a servant is about. We give up our right to hold on to our grudges. We give up our right to hold on to that bitterness and that anger and that hatred We forgive. Because as servants, we give up our rights to anything else. And he begins this section by talking about how we treat those who are vulnerable and sacrificing for them. He says, things that cause people to sin, they're bound to come. But woe to that person through whom they come. Be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than for them to cause one of these little ones to sin. So watch yourselves. When people are going to sin, stuff's going to happen. But if we have anything to do with people sinning, wow. There are serious consequences to that. There is a a sentence that's spoken in virtually every wedding ceremony. And it's probably overlooked by most people. Most of the time, we don't think that much about it. But it does, it does come. And in most ceremonies, the, the person officiating says this sentence. After the couple has exchanged their vows, after they have shared their rings, put the rings on each other, each finger, the officiant says, now that this man and woman have given their lives to, to each other through vows and they've exchanged rings with each other, I now pronounce to you they are husband and wife together in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the the next sentence, the last part of that says, the efficient says, those whom God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, if I were to paraphrase that, and I've, I've had thoughts of this sometime to stop the wedding ceremony right there and to do that, but I've decided not to do it to the couple But I want to say, you all do understand what that says. And that's not my word. These are Jesus' words. 
And he says, if you do anything to disintegrate this relationship, if you do anything to bring, to bring division and separation and trouble to this relationship, God help you. You're in trouble. And that's one thing. And this happens to all of us. There are relationships in our lives. There are vulnerable people in our lives that we simply have to say, I'm going to sacrifice for them. I have to be careful about how I live because it affects people who are vulnerable, spiritually vulnerable, vulnerable because of their age, vulnerable because of what they don't know about the gospel and the church. Earlier this summer, it was an article in Christianity Today magazine about a woman. I, I got the feeling she was probably in her late 20s, early 30s. Grew up in a home where uh, they didn't, didn't have any alcohol in their home. And uh, as she got older, most of her friends were drinking. And when she turned 21, that became a part of her life as well. Nothing serious. Just, you know, she and her friends hang out at the bar or, you know, some wine over a meal. or You know, it was... Nothing she couldn't handle. When she got married, she and her husband just continued this practice. It was just part of their lives, as it is for a lot of people. After they'd been married a few years, they they felt called by God to move into an apartment building located in the inner city of one of the cities of this country. And there, she said, life was very different. It was not unusual for her to walk out of the apartment and go down the steps and have to step over a man who was passed out drunk at 11 o'clock in the morning. She would hear people coming home drunk and getting into huge arguments. She, the police would come and arrest men for being drunk and beating their wives and their children. She saw what it did to the people who lived in their apartment complex. And one day she was going into the liquor store to get some wine or something. And out came one of the people she recognized from her building loaded down with alcohol. And in that moment she had a sense from the Holy Spirit saying, What you're doing is your right. But would you give up that right because of how these people can't handle it? And so from that moment on, she and her husband said, no more. And we're not trying to judge other people. We're just simply saying, God convicted us to give up that. Because it was a negative influence on people who are vulnerable. And I suspect there are things in our lives that we, God may be leading us to give up. It's our right and we have the freedom to do all kinds of things. But we give it up because of other people. And it's not just negative things. It's positive too. We decide I'm going to give up my time on Wednesday night so that I'll come and I'll work with our children's ministry or on Sunday night to work with the youth group. Or I'm going to give up my time to to make a meal for somebody who is in need. Or I'm going to go up to the nursing home and visit with people who maybe tomorrow won't even remember I was there. I'm going to take time to listen to a child talk to me even though I can't really make sense out of what they're saying. But I love them and care about them. Maybe it has to do with, with someone that in your dorm room or in your apartment building that you know needs a friend and they're high energy. 
And you're willing to give up your time and your energy to be that friend. As servants, in a sense, our lives aren't our own. We sacrifice. We give up for people who are vulnerable and who have needs. Fred Craddock says that a lot of us like to think of giving our lives to God as sort of laying this $1,000 bill on the table and saying, Lord, here's my life, here's all of it. And we're kind of thinking of our lives going sort of up in a blaze of glory. And people standing back and saying, wow, look at all the sacrifice they made. Look at that. That's amazing. He says, actually, I think it's more appropriate to think that God would say to us, take that $1,000 bill and go to the bank and cash it in for quarters. And spend your lives every day serving 25 cents here, 50 cents there, 75 cents there. Maybe every so often a dollar here. Just being a servant in everyday life to everyday people in everyday ways without recognition. And lots of time without anyone ever knowing what we've done. We just do it. It is a lifestyle we embrace. It's not a one-time decision. It becomes our identity. It's who we are as people of God. We're servants. Jesus says, it's our, you come to the end of it, it's our duty. It's, it's just our lives. It's just what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We serve. We give of ourselves. And we can't help everyone. We can't be a servant to everyone. But I know, and I would suspect there are people that you're thinking of right now. That God is saying to you, I want you to be a servant to this person. I want you to sacrifice because they have a need. I'm not talking to you about every person in the world. I'm just talking to you about this person. Maybe these groups of people. We sacrifice our rights. We sacrifice our freedom. Because these people, these children, these youth, these neighbors, these people in our family, these people we work with, whatever, have a need. And God has put their need on our hearts. Why do we wrestle to so much to be servants? Because we do, right? I mean, we all wrestle being servants. It's, it's, it's a struggle. And I'm convinced it's because we don't truly believe that we are loved by God. Because, because we don't believe we are loved by God, we spend our lives trying to get people to love us. Trying to grab from people, trying to get people's attention, trying to get things from people. And serving is not a part of that. Unless our serving is a way of getting attention. Because we are trying to fill a void that only God can fill. And that's what's so fascinating about what Isaiah says about Jesus. Beginning in chapter 42 and on through virtually the rest of the book. Isaiah says, let me talk to you about the anointed one who is to come. Let me talk to you about my holy one. The Messiah. He will be a suffering servant. This is who he is. And Paul 
says to the people in Philippi, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. And he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is the God who calls us to serve, who loves us so much that Christ comes to serve. To serve so that we might know the fullness of God's love for us so that in knowing that love, we can be free to serve. And we come to this table recognizing that this is the table of God's serving Savior. This is the table of the one who gave his life for us and rose from the dead that we might have life and ascended to be with the Father and has promised to return for us. The one who calls us to serve is the greatest servant of all. And what fascinates me is that Jesus doesn't serve because he has to. He doesn't serve begrudgingly. Jesus doesn't come to earth because God's got his arm pinned up behind his back and he can't do anything else. Because he chooses to serve. And when Jesus is born into this world, heaven doesn't mourn. Heaven rejoices, celebrates. And there is something about serving. When we do it in the spirit of Christ, that brings joy to God and joy to us. Because it is the pathway of life and grace and the fullness of the Spirit. So as you think about the call to serve, do you see God's grace in Christ, the servant? And do you hear God calling you to be this kind of servant to someone, a group of people, a person in your life. Father, we thank you for what you've done for us in Christ Jesus. As we prepare to gather at this table, we are reminded of your sacrifice in Christ, a sacrifice of love and mercy and grace. We pray that you will pour out the abundance of your blessing upon the bread and the cup, that as we eat and drink, we may know the joy of Christ in our lives. We may be united together as one in Christ, and that we may know the grace of serving you by serving each other. It is in the name of, through the power of, in the grace of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.
On the night that Jesus was betrayed, meeting with his disciples, he took bread. He gave thanks, and then he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, saying, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And on the same night, he took the cup. Again, he gave thanks to the Father in heaven and gave it to his disciples, saying, Drink from this, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for your sins and the sins of all people. Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. This morning, we are receiving communion by the mode of intinction. This means to dip in. As you are released by rose, come to the front, tear off a piece of bread, dip it into the cup and eat it. And you may return to your seat by the outside aisles. The altar is always open if you would like to stay and pray. If coming to the front is difficult for you, we do have trays of bread and cups. And we are happy to serve you in your seat. Just let the usher know as your row is released. And I also have gluten-free wafers and cups here as well. And if you would like those, just let me know as you come here to the front. I like to mention every time we take communion, that we practice open communion. It's maybe the first time you've ever worshipped here. You may be a part of a different Christian tradition. But if you come today with your heart open to the grace of God and your desire is to be a servant of God to each other, then come. Receive these gifts from the hand of our loving, gracious, heavenly Father.
Please stand and join me in the closing hymn number 302.
receive the benediction. Go forth to serve both God and your neighbor in all that you do. And as servants of God, serving one another, may the grace of God fill your life this day and every day. Amen.